The Grazadio School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello and welcome. My name is Rick Gibson. I'm the Associate Vice President for Public Affairs here at Pepperdine University, and I'm joined today by Dr. Linda Livingstone, who's the Dean of the Grazadio School of Business and Management. Welcome, Linda. Well, good morning, Rick. It's good to be here. Well, here we are again at uh, the beginning of another season of the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. Uh, you know, it's hard to believe, but I guess it was spring of 2004 when this uh, series started. How's the series going? Are you drawing an audience? Uh, it seems like it's going well, because here we are again. Well, it's been an exceptional series for us year in and year out. And this year, we're especially pleased because we have some really key industries represented that are going through interesting and challenging times from healthcare to banking uh, to the technology industry. So I think everyone will be quite interested in the speakers that we have this year. Yeah, I know it's important for the business school to provide both uh, business knowledge that is applied and relevant. And it seems like these speakers are certainly uh, right there. I mean, I, I know that you've invited some and uh, from uh, Mattel and from General Motors in the past. Um, who do we have this year that's uh, just right in the right in the mm-hmm. thick of things? Well, a couple of uh, folks that I will mention in industries that are quite interesting. We have the president of Consumer and Small Business Banking with Bank of America, Brian Moynihan, that's joining us this year. Uh, we also have a couple of individuals from healthcare, Leslie Margolin, who's the president and general manager of Anthem Blue Cross in California, and then John Figueroa, who's president of U.S. Pharmaceutical with McKesson Corporation, a large uh, supplier of pharmaceuticals, and. So So I think with all that's going on around the country with regard to the economy and financial services, the big debate that's going on right now in healthcare, uh, our listeners and participants will be quite well informed by the end of this series about some of those issues. Well, today we're going to uh, speak just briefly uh, with uh, Caroline W. Nehas. Uh, she is the Managing Director for the Southern California Offices of Corn Ferry International. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Caroline. Well, we thought it would be interesting to bring Caroline here because of what's going on in the economy, concerns people have about employment and the right. direction that that's going. And so she is one of the top 100 recruiters in the United States, uh, particularly at the executive level. She's been in Southern California for many years doing that. So I think uh, the listeners will be, uh, will learn a lot about what's going on in the economy and what they need to do to position themselves effectively right. for new career opportunities. Right, right. And there's a, a lot of people kind of uh, wondering about the employment situation, so I'm sure they'll be interested in this topic. Well, uh, let me invite our listeners to sit back and relax and enjoy this conversation with Caroline W. Nehas. pleasure to be here for the first of our Dean's Executive Leadership Series this year, and we're pleased to have with us Caroline Nahas, who is the Managing Director for the Southern California region of Corn Ferry. So, Caroline, it is such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Linda. It's a great time to be here with you, too. Well, I just want to start by um, talking a little bit about uh, what your responsibilities are, are at Corn Ferry, and, and even from a career perspective, given that you do a lot of work with people's careers, how you got to where you are in your career uh, in the role that you have now. So now I have a kind of a wide range of responsibilities. Uh, first and foremost, I have a responsibility in terms of clients. Um, I do a lot of work in the CEO and the board director level for a wide range of 
clients, especially in the board practice, you cross all industries. Uh, so I work very, very closely with candidates and clients. Uh, in addition, um, I manage the Southern California practice of Corn Ferry. Uh, Corn Ferry is the largest executive search firm um, in, the, in the world, actually, but um, our office happens to be the flagship office because we were founded in Los Angeles, which a lot of people don't know. They think of search firms as being primarily on the East Coast or um, in the Midwest. Uh, and then in addition to that, which is an extension of what I do, which works out great, um, I'm also involved in the community because if you think about it, it's synergistic with our work. And also the values of our firm have always promoted being active in our community. And then lastly, I sit on two boards. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of those is a public board. In fact, I know you had Julia Stewart here, who's the CEO of Dynequity, which is a combination of Applebee's and IHOP. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm active on that board and have been on that board for probably 15 years. And I sit on another board called Whittier Trust which is a asset management company. So when you started your career, you graduated from UCLA. I did. And where did you see your career going at that time, and how did you, what path did you sort of go down to ultimately get to where you are today? So it's an interesting track, and one I have reflected on and shared with people as I've either um, evaluated them and talked to them about making a career change or actually people that were recruiting to Corn Ferry. Um, I did start my career at Bank of America, but I was working part-time at the bank during um, my last two or three years at UCLA. And uh, someone within the bank uh, identified me as being a hard worker. I loved, by the way, I loved being a teller. My husband always said I gave up. He thinks I gave some free money uh, because I was so busy building relationships right. with the customers that I probably wasn't paying as much attention to giving the money out. Well, the customers probably loved you being a yeah, teller well, then, too. Yeah, that's probably so. why they kept coming back to my <laughs> right. line hoping for a, uh, a gift. Um, but in any event, uh, the head of operations saw that I was thriving and that I was a hard worker and said, you know, you'd be great in banking, so why don't you interview with uh, Bank of America for our training program. And I went down to interview, uh, and unbeknownst to me, they were looking for a college recruiter, but I had no idea that that was the case. But they started sort of shifting the interview questions to someone that would be more external, marketing-oriented, working with students, and I, it was kind of a natural for me, of course, if I'd gone down to interview for that job, they would have said it wasn't available. Uh, I ultimately ended up being hired as a college recruiter, and I did that for two years, and then, um, fortunately for me, my uh, superior got promoted. So they had no alternative but to put me in the interim role, and I worked as hard as I possibly could and kind of won them over, so within about six months, they promoted me to head of management recruitment, and I did that for five years. At that point, I made a decision, and again, this is something I share with people in terms of growing your career and kind of thinking about what you want to do for the future. I realized that the mainstream of banking was not in human resources, but rather in finance. Mm -hmm. So I transferred, actually, over into international banking, and I did that for two years. The first year, uh, it was a real struggle because I really didn't understand a lot of things, but um, I just kept my head down. And the second year, I rather liked it, but I didn't love it. 
didn't have a passion for it. So that's at, at that point I had to make a decision what I wanted to do and I transitioned then to Corn Ferry, mm -hmm. which was absolutely a brilliant kind of natural match for me because it was leveraging off the experience I had acquired at Bank of America in terms of understanding businesses, making loans, etc., and marrying that with recruiting, which I had really loved and I have a passion for, so it worked out perfectly. So your story is interesting because there was a clear delineation, a clear point in your career where you realized that you needed to do something different than what you were doing. So in your role as a in a search firm and, and really looking for high-level folks, whether it's on boards or in executive positions, how do you go about finding that right match of the person with the company or the position so that you're really getting a good skill set match, a good passion match, good culture match? What are the key uh, things you look for both in the company and in the individual? So it's a, it's a great question uh, because there's the art and the science. Mm -hmm. um, the science is looking at individuals, do they have the track record, do they have the requisite skills and experiences that match up with the position and the role and the company. And sometimes those are in the form of competencies and not necessarily exact experience, but finding out if those match up. So we do a lot of interviewing and assessing, and we also have an assessment tool we use that extracts a lot of that as well. And then the second piece is more the art, and that's assessing the behaviors, the interpersonal skills, the style, does that fit in with the culture, and extended on the art side is also thinking about when you're, when you're meeting with clients, which in our case are the corporations hiring the people, not the, not the candidates, trying to see what is they're articulating and what are some of the hidden things. For example, some founders of companies will tell you that they want someone who's extremely strong, that takes them out of the job, that debates with them, that argues with them. Um, and when you see how that all plays out, you realize that it's going to take a very special person sure. to work with a founder that have put their heart and soul into a company. So that's reading between the lines and still getting the match but getting the match that's good short-term and long-term and not just what we see for, for the long-term. So in the economy today, obviously it's an interesting economy, one that is not what we've seen for such a long time. How is that affecting uh, the industry and Corn Ferry particularly, and how is that changing how you do your work? So it's kind of interesting that you, you would use the word interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would use the word uh, Mr. Toad's wild ride or, um, you know, completely, you know, so unprecedented and, and no playbook in mm -hmm. terms of how, how do we navigate through this. So I'll take it in sections. How it's manifested itself in our industry, uh, it's been very rough. Because mm -hmm. if you think about it, we're retained by companies to hire people. Mm -hmm. And what the companies have been doing really in the last year is downsizing, putting people on furloughs, putting people on different kinds of programs, all of which is designed to decrease the cost structure in their companies. Further, even if they 
need somebody, they're going to do everything they can to either double up in positions or hire someone on their own so they don't need to, to incur a cost from a consultant or an executive search firm. So that's that side, which obviously has impacted significantly our business. So most of the search firms, some of whom are which are public, some are not, um, have downsized probably by 30 to 40 percent, which has been extraordinarily difficult. In the case of Corn Ferry, we did that, and in addition, rather than taking out more people, we actually did a furlough program, which I thought was innovative and creative, mm -hmm. and was received quite well by our employees, because what the employees realized is, here, here are our alternatives. We lay more people off, mm -hmm. or we are all in this together, and we try to get through this period of time and not have to impact the lives of other or more people, and we were able to do that in quite successfully. And then managing the firm is, and we can talk about this um, later, expand on it, is how do you lead mm -hmm. through that where you're, you, it, it's like you're a hybrid, it's a combination of sharing reality, telling the truth, and at the same time giving people hope mm -hmm. and get, getting them to focus forward mm -hmm. and that's very tricky uh, because if you say only you know this is harsh this is bad this is of course it's bad right but what are we all doing mm -hmm. here's what we're doing together to address the issue but there's only one thing that's going to change in it it's all of us in the boat together toward a common purpose mm -hmm. of moving the business forward and that's what I've always found. Um, it's, it's a challenge, but it also creates opportunities. And so that's kind of the status of our industry as well as Corn Ferry. It's kind of being honest about the reality of now, but providing hope that yeah. we can get through this together and finding a way to do it. And some leaders are great at that, and others certainly find right. challenges in doing right. that. Well, and most of us who have led in the past, have been unfortunately not necessarily as deep as this, yeah. but we've been through it mm -hmm. before. And if you think about it, not even in terms of a recession, but anytime you have these blows or setbacks, I think of 9-11 and managing through that and just remembering the um, profound um, uncertainty and the level of um, people being so distraught and trying to get them settled and buoyed at a time that people were frightened. Mm -hmm. It's much the same kind of thing of not dismissing what just happened, but trying to get people to settle down and know that they're going to be okay. So while your client is the company that, that has mm -hmm. hired you to find folks, you clearly work with a lot of people that are looking for opportunities. And there are many people that have been very successful in their careers, very competent, that are now looking for work mm -hmm. that would not have ever seen themselves in that kind of position. And there's probably people listening to our uh, podcast that are in that situation. So given the experiences you've had and all you've learned through both this current situation and through the years, what advice would you give to those individuals that are out there in this economy looking for you know fairly high-level, white-collar kinds of positions? Right. And what is the best way to sort of manage through that position yourself uh, as best you can given the difficulties of, of the circumstances? 
So I'll try to give a kind of a couple of lessons learned. Uh, one is to treat it like it's a job. Um, looking for a job is a task, and so you have to lay out kind of your strategy and discipline yourself to do certain things every single day. Uh, and it, it's a little harder if you think about it for people who have always worked, because if you think about it, work to a certain extent gives us a day-to-day -day energy. Mm -hmm. We have kind of a purpose. We go in. Uh, when you're interfacing with people all the time, they kind of begin to direct you and you get some energy. And all of a sudden, you're doing everything on your own. So there's a lot of self-initiative mm -hmm. and discipline. So first, I would say that. Secondly, um, the roadmap in terms of what are you going to do. What industries are you going to look at? What kind of opportunities? And I would say on that, stay as open and flexible as possible rather than reiterative, uh, which means, well, first I'll only look at this region or this area, then I'll look at this. and uh, Because you can find, if you don't open yourself to a lot of possibilities and be flexible at the very beginning, you can find the time goes by very swiftly and all of a sudden you're looking at six to nine months that have gone by and you don't have anything. Uh, on the interview side, uh, preparation, preparation, preparation. Know the company and not just what's written on paper. Look at the analyst reports mm -hmm. because it gives you kind of a little more background. And then if possible, and I think of the alumni from Pepperdine, for example, if they're individuals that are working for the company without necessarily disclosing anything I'm interviewing, maybe it's public and that's fine, mm -hmm. but find out from them, what's the culture? Who are the kinds of people? What are the kinds of profiles that seem to be most applicable and successful within this company? Uh, what is the job, if they know? What are the pluses? What are the minuses? Uh, and then take yourself both in terms of your experiences and who you are as an individual and correlate those, both to the job itself, to the company, and then also to the culture of the company and do it naturally because what you want to create hopefully is an exchange and a dialogue in the meeting, not kind of a uh, of reciting mm -hmm. everything in a mechanical way because that's not going to be particularly yeah. productive. So those are some things but I would say don't hesitate to make connections with people that might be able to help you. You're not asking them for a job. You're simply asking them to give you information, to give as much color as they can, and then to maybe make a warm introduction. All that does is get you into the door. It doesn't get you a job. Well, it's great advice for our MBA students as well as they're looking oh. at jobs out of a full-time program or even job transitions out of jobs they may already be in. So that's right. wonderful that you shared that with us. Uh, change tax just a little bit. You're on two corporate boards, mm -hmm. and then your practice at Corn Ferry places people on boards. Right. So what are you seeing uh, happening in terms of what companies are looking for on boards, and there's issues around increasing diversity on boards, clearly with all of the issues with Sarbanes-Oxley and all the increased oversight and concern about uh, whether boards are really doing their job in, mm -hmm. in managing companies and looking out for companies. What What's changing about what companies are looking for in board members? Um, 
how people should think about themselves if they're interested in being on a board. So what's changing in that part of your practice and in that part of the business world? So I don't know, and I'd have to think about this, I don't know whether the criteria has changed that much um, because you always looked for people that had certain qualities in terms of perspective, judgment, took their job seriously, would have some requisite experience that would be applicable. I, I think the greater change now is kind of the landscape mm -hmm. out there that it used to be, you, and I, I don't even when I say years ago, probably five years ago, where it was kind of, you know, people went on boards, it was prestigious to be on mm -hmm. a board. You would see CEOs, sitting CEOs mm -hmm. that had responsibility themselves sitting often on two to three boards, you're not seeing that no. as much now. Uh, what you're seeing is maybe a CEO saying, I'll take one board, and that board better be really special, something that will help me either professionally from the standpoint of my own company and learnings, which is helpful, or will broaden me, um, which, you know, kind of a side note, some people will say, I want to be on a board that is almost sort of in my industry or related mm -hmm. industry. Others will say, interestingly, I know my industry. I want to be on another industry board so that some of the things they're doing, learnings that I can get from good corporate governance, good board interaction, what's an effective board, high-performing company in a different industry, maybe they're more global than we are, I can learn from that and apply that. So those kinds of things are always existed, in, but I could make a case, don't go on something you already know, go on something that you don't know. Um, the boards are having to work harder in terms of recruiting people. Yeah. Because it, it isn't just, oh, geez, we have a company and it's really a terrific company, wouldn't you like to be on this board? The candidates are very discerning. Candidates want to spend time with the CEO for two reasons. Do I agree philosophically mm -hmm. with them? Do I kind of, you don't have to agree 100%, but do I, do I feel good about the strategy and how they're ana analyzing the market and where the company is going? And then fundamentally, do I trust the CEO? That is, in fact, I should say that's the first, first thing, thing you, you look at because if you bet. don't trust the CEO, the other stuff is kind of mm -hmm. irrelevant. What are things an individual can do who's interested in being on a board to sort of better position themselves for a role like that at some point? So it, it's hard. You don't really market yourself mm -hmm, sure. for a board. So it's very different than if you hear that there's a CFO position mm -hmm. and you make a contact and you say, I have these credentials, I'm a CFO, and I'm interested in this opportunity. Uh, if you know that there's a board opening, it, it, it's kind of funny because it's, it's not the same like calling up and saying, I want to be on your board. So you have to be more subtle. It's more subtle than that. Uh, but one of the ways in which uh, you can kind of be, uh, make yourself more visible is a couple of ways is people um, kind of centers what I call spheres of influence. Um, many times when recruiters at least are doing board searches, they'll call the managing partner of a law firm, the managing partner of the public accounting firms, perhaps the consulting firms and say, who do you know who is outstanding and has these kind of attributes and experiences? And the people will say, you know, I was just meeting with Linda 
and she's outstanding, and she's indicated that she's an interest, in, and here's why I think she might be interested. It means that Linda has made contact with some of those people to say, I'm open to a board, mm -hmm. I'm considering, or I'm considering going on a board, which sounds better than I want a board seat. Right. Um, I'm considering a board, and let me share with you a little bit about what I've done at Pepperdine, mm -hmm. rather than I'm the dean, right. but here's what we've done mm -hmm. during that time, which allows them to see a broader Linda than just what's on paper. Mm -hmm. sure. So then they take that, and then if they hear of something, they help kind of put that together. Interestingly, on the what was the IHOP board, now the Dine mm -hmm. Equity board, that wasn't through Julia, because Julia came quite a ways after it was after that. Equity, yeah. I um, had met a client who was the CEO of IHOP when I first started at Corn Ferry, and it, there was a huge difference in our ages and our experience, because he at that time was the CEO, mm -hmm. and I was what they called a senior associate, and I had done one search for him that went mm -hmm. well. And then he would, from time to time, he'd call and he'd say, I just like your input on something which it, to a consultant is very flattering for mm -hmm. someone to just call and say, I don't have a search, I just mm -hmm. want to get your input. And we would sit together and I'm pretty good at just being very practical and kind of thinking through mm -hmm. scenarios, most of which was related to people. And then he was, became chair of the MS Society. Mm -hmm. And he called and he said, would, I would really like you to go on the MS board. I'd never been on a not-for-profit board, so I said, fine. And then I took a leadership position on the board so he was able to see me in another mm -hmm. context. And then when IHOP went public, he called up and said, I need four independent directors and I'd really like you to go mm -hmm. on the board. I didn't seek it out. I didn't try to position mm -hmm. myself. I just demonstrated some things that he thought were important. And the other aspect was that the restaurant business is so labor intensive mm -hmm. because of the experiences I've had 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 and the advice and counsel he was always seeking from me was always people related. Mm -hmm. So he felt strongly that he needed someone with people experience. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting track. Sure. But I think not for profits mm -hmm. is one way if but but pick one, be clever and pick one that's going to have people that might be influencers. Um, if you pick a, a group that you say, oh, gee, the people on the board would never in a million years be able to have access to a board, then it's not, I'm not saying you need to be calculating. If you have a passion for something, that's great. But if you're really thinking of it from a standpoint, I can give, I can make a contribution, but at the same time I might derive a benefit that's another way of doing it. Thirdly, in terms of exposure, is there is a California Roundtable of Board mm -hmm. Directors. And I think going to that, seeing kind of what the language is, what are the topical issues, et cetera, you become a little bit more conversant. And you may, in fact, meet some people that might have some possibilities. Mm -hmm. Great. So in the context of that, you talked about getting involved in a nonprofit that influenced you getting mm -hmm. on the board of Dine Equity. Uh, and you have been very involved in nonprofits since then, one of which is the United Way. Mm -hmm. And you are now president. Chairman. Chairman, excuse me. Don't chairman. make me president. Use the correct that's a, term. That's a real job. 
That's the day our chairman job. of the board of the United Way. Mm -hmm. Talk about what it is about that organization that gave you the passion to want to step into that kind mm -hmm. of a role, and then kind of building on that, why you think it's so important for people in the business community mm -hmm. to be engaged in organizations like that. And I ask this question because our, our mission at the University at Pepperdine is to develop students for lives of purpose, service, and leadership. And so we believe very much in there being a service component in people's lives, no matter what they do professionally. And you've clearly done that mm -hmm. at a very significant level. So in the context of United Way, I'd love to hear more about that. So uh, as I think I mentioned earlier, fortunately for me, it was a value at Corn Ferry when I got there. And I had two examples, Lester Corn and Richard Ferry, both of whom were very committed to the community and giving back. It's also somewhat synergistic to our business mm -hmm. in that um, many individuals, not many, but some individuals who would be on that board potentially could be clients as well. Um, but there's a variety, to your point, most of us could go on many boards, so why did I pick United Way? Uh, and it, it's pretty easy for me, and it's become even more clear in the last year, but of all the organizations, there are so many organizations, especially in Los Angeles, that are worthy. Mm -hmm. But United Way knows the landscape in our community more than anyone. They know the organizations. They know which ones are uh, being more successful. They know which ones are more relevant. And so I felt that in terms of my contribution and getting kind of a multiplier effect, it, it would be through... United Way. Stepping up to the chair was a different story because interestingly um, the CEO Elise Buick had been mm -hmm. asking me, very effectively I might add, to step up to the chair and I kept resisting it mainly because I thought I, I don't know whether I could give the kind of time and energy and you just sort of shy away from that and here I am at the worst time in our mm -hmm. community in terms of poverty, in terms of people losing jobs, the foreclosures, everything you can think of. But it's a perfect opportunity mm -hmm. because what other time, there is no other time, where United Way has been needed more. So ironically, although the asking is harder because people are struggling themselves in terms of giving, there's no greater message. So it just created an opportunity. And then lastly, I think a lot of times we, we join organizations because of the cause. We also join because of the individual. And Elise Buick, the CEO, is probably one of the best. Yeah, I've met Elise, she's amazing. It, she's one of the amazing. best executives yeah. with whom I've worked. So I'm sitting there saying, my gosh, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of attached <laughs> to a rock star. She's getting award after uh -huh. award after award, and she just doesn't miss a beat. She doesn't allow uh, setbacks to derail her. Uh, she stays focused. She works, she's just relentless with her work ethic. So we're a good partnership, mm -hmm. and uh, I have to say, I mean, it's, it's work, but I'm also, I hate, I hate to admit this, I'm kind of having fun, but don't that's, tell her. No, she might, no. She might extend my term more. Well, that's wonderful that you're doing that, and it is making such a difference. And I know their theme right now is Pathways to Poverty, that that's really their focus. Out of poverty. Out of, excuse me, Pathways, yes. You don't pathways, want pathways out of poverty, to poverty. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of an interesting, because they really have focused their right. efforts maybe differently than other United Way 
agencies around the they country, have. but obviously meeting the needs of the Los Angeles yeah. area. So. Well, thanks for raising that and thanks for knowing mm -hmm. about it because that's under Elise's mm -hmm. leadership and we're just completing the first of the three year, first three years of a 10 year plan and it was designed to stay uh, focused on education, on financial stability and on health care. And the reason she did that is not because other organizations weren't worthy, but United Way was kind of known as this potpourri mm -hmm. of anything that needed help. And what they did is they really tightened it up and they um, decreased the number of what used to be agencies but are now called partnerships. Mm -hmm. And you actually have to go through an RFP uh, to apply. But we give grants for three years, which I really like because one year is too, too short term. You and I both know because we're both in leadership roles. I mean, we, a year goes by in the blink of an eye. Sure. So to give them three years to kind of execute their plan, but there are all sorts of milestones and results that we monitor. And if they don't live up to those, then we pull them out of the program. And United Way, I, I just think it was a little bit more altruistic and mm -hmm. magnanimous about anything. And now, I, I, I can't remember what the percentage was, but I'm gonna say maybe we were at 200 mm -hmm. agencies and now we have 110 partnerships. So it's a significant yeah. shift led by, by her. Yeah. And we need to wrap up our discussion, it's been wonderful, but I wanna conclude with a question. In your description of Elise, sort of raised this for me. In the business school, uh, our mission talks about developing value-centered leaders and advancing responsible business practice. And so as you described Elise, it sounded very much like a values-centered leader. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things we talk a lot with our students about is, is how values drive who you are as a leader. So for you personally, what are the, the key values, whether it's two or three or four, that sort of drive who you are as a leader and help guide the decisions you make every day? So some of this probably is formed by your parents mm -hmm. or you know who you are, but um, trying to be fair, and I recognize fair sometimes is in the eyes of the beholder, but at least what you believe is fair and you've taken everything into consideration, um, respect, for everyone, I don't care who it is. And I learned that actually from Richard Ferry. I learned it from a lot of people, but I watched him, here he was, the founder of our firm, very wealthy in his own right, um, CEO of, founder of the biggest search firm in the world, so very prominent, very visible. And I used to watch him go into social settings when we'd have office get-togethers, and I watched him move from person to person regardless of level, who they were, ask, looking right at them, asking about them, never looking around the room, who's more important. Uh, and I, I kind of modeled after that. I think it was my tendency, but I learned, I'm a really good learner from experience and watching the good and the bad. And he was just a great model of that. So I've just learned like mutual respect and treating people all equally is really important to me. Uh, and trying as much as you can, you know, when you become a, if it's a CEO or a leader of an office or someone, you get a rhythm and you kind of get used to your own style and it's easy to know what you're doing all the time because you kind of, you practiced a while. 
but trying very hard to go into a meeting with, even though you may in your own mind say, I think I know where we're going, but making people feel a value that they have something to offer uh, and trying to be open enough, not to wish be wishy-washy, but to be open enough to, if you hear a great idea, to give them the benefit of that, which leads me to my last, which is to see accomplishments through others. Uh, I have had tremendous recognition and a lot of accolades, uh, but part of those are watching people that I brought in, that I've spent time with, that I've mentored, that I've encouraged, be great at what they do because it comes back mm -hmm. and reflects on you, but I think seeing accomplishments through others would be another value. Wonderful. Those are excellent to share with our audience. And Caroline, we just really appreciate you being with us for the Dean's Executive Leadership Series and taking time to join us for this conversation. Well, it's my pleasure. Well, Linda, as expected, that was a fascinating interview. Well, Caroline is really an amazing woman, and uh, even in meeting her, uh, it was really fascinating to watch her interact with people, and you mm -hmm. can tell that she's very much a people person and cares deeply about right. people's success, and right. so you can hear that in, in the podcast really as well. that, yes. Well, tell us uh, who is uh, on tap next for the uh, series. Well, our second speaker in the series this year is Brian Moynihan, who's the president, consumer and small business banking with Bank of America, so we're very excited about having him with us. He is sometimes mentioned as a possible CEO successor for Bank of America. Right, right. Well, we look forward to that. Well, let me invite our listeners to uh, follow this online by visiting bschool.pepperdine.edu slash Dells, that's D-E-L-S, to learn more about this series and to listen to the podcasts. You may also follow us on iTunes U or on YouTube. So uh, until next time, thank you for listening. In a tough economy, investing in yourself is one of the best investments you can make. And an education is something that can never be repossessed foreclosed upon or lose its value. That's why now is the perfect time to earn your master's in business from Pepperdine University. Because Pepperdine's exceptional MBA programs are built around real-world curriculum, not just theory. So you'll gain knowledge that can be applied immediately on the job, increasing your value in the workplace. During the past century, our country has survived over a dozen recessions. The economy will eventually turn around, and when it does, you'll be ahead with a degree from Pepperdine. You'll also have access to Pepperdine's extensive alumni network, career development opportunities, and employment resources. Visit bschool.pepperdine.edu today. Pepperdine University's prestigious Grazio Dio School of Business and Management.